the Ancazine Brief with Peter Hoffland and Sonia Portillo. In this edition of the Ancazine Brief, we're talking with Dr. Fred Hirsch. Thank you for joining us. I'm Peter Hoffland, here with Sonia Portillo. Dr. Hirsch has served as the CEO of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer since 2013, and he has been a professor at the University of Colorado School of Medicine since 1999. For over 25 years, he's worked with clinical and translational research in lung cancer, and his current interest is in biomarker developments for early detection, chemo prevention, and treatment of lung cancer. Lung cancer remains one of the most frequently diagnosed cancers. It is also one of the deadliest cancers, with each year more than 1.6 million tumor-related deaths worldwide. The correlation between smoking and mortality from lung cancer has been clearly confirmed, and the decrease of mortality after cessation of tobacco use has been seen in the United States, since 1991st in men and later since the early 2000s also in women. Although direct environmental exposure to tobacco smoke is the predominant risk factor, inhalation of cancer-causing agents such as marijuana or hookah use also contribute to the risk of lung cancer. Additional risk factors include exposure to radon, asbestos, diesel exhaust, and ionizing radiation. Furthermore, the latest evidence suggests that there is a correlation between lung cancer and chronic obstructive lung disease, that is independent of tobacco use and is most likely caused as a result of a genetic abnormality. Today, lung cancer in patients who have never smoked account for approximately 25% of all the cases in the U.S. As a result, this has attracted growing interest because of the potential of treatable oncogenic alterations and the opportunity for individualized treatment. After the break, we'll be back with Dr. Hirsch. Dr. Hirsch, welcome to the Oncuisine Brief. You're the CEO of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, uh, which is the only global organization dedicated solely to the study of lung cancer. Can you tell us a little bit more about the organization and what you try to accomplish? Thank you, and thank you for the invitation. Uh, yeah, the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer uh, which is also just called ISLC, uh, is uh, today uh, almost 45 years old. Uh, that is an organization uh, which was um, established uh, through uh, scientific collaboration and uh, and bringing mainly bringing uh, investigators together to focus on uh, lung cancer research. That was the original concept. Uh, of course, the organization has a uh, mission and vision. Uh, we want to reduce the lung cancer burden globally, and we do that uh, through education, through science, and uh, probably very soon also through public policy. Uh, the organization has more than 7,000 uh, members. It is a multidisciplinary international organization uh, with membership in more than 100 different countries. 
so uh, as I said, um, the focus of the organization is um, education and science and uh, disseminate uh, scientific achievements uh, all over the world and uh, also try to facilitate implementation of uh, preventive message, message uh, screening and the therapy of lung cancer. Right. Now, you're originally from, uh, from, from, from Europe, um, and, and how does what you do right now here uh, different, is different in the different parts of the world? For example, Europe versus the United States or versus, versus Asia? Yeah, so I grew up in, in Copenhagen, Denmark, and uh, of course know the European system very well. Um, there are cultural differences, clearly, and uh, an international organization like ISLC, of course, need to deal with cultural differences. Uh, however, lung cancer is a major global health problem. Um, on a global basis, 1.6 million uh, pa uh, patients are diagnosed every year. Uh, so it is a huge uh, global health burden, and uh, the goal is, of course, the same all over the world. We want to reduce the uh, lung cancer burden, but the way we uh, need to approach it might differ uh, based on cultural, uh, economical, and uh, uh, educational differences. Right. Now, when we talk about the cultural difference, when we talk about um, some of those important issues, um, there, there is obviously also a discrepancy in the way people are being treated here in the United States, for example, but also in other areas. I mean, is your organization trying to kind of minimize the impact of that? Absolutely, yes. Uh there are uh, differences in United States uh, uh, as well. Uh, even with this high level of education, we uh, we have in this country, but there is a difference between Joplin's Missouri and uh, New York City or Boston or Denver, Colorado. Uh, so we are trying as an organization to fill in the gaps and uh, to try to minimize or reduce the differences. Uh, but of course, uh, talking globally, uh, we see huge differences uh, between the different geographical uh, regions. So that is uh, our uh, main goal is to try to disseminate scientific advances all over and try to educate uh, ac ac academicians, uh, community practices, uh, nurses, advocates, patients, uh, and try to educate them in uh, what is a standard of care and what is new uh, scientific achievements. 
Right. Now, when we talk about some of the important issues that we've seen over the last decades, and we look at the standard of care, uh, we look at uh, the availability of new treatment options over the last couple of months even, we've seen that a lot of those new advancements uh, happen very quickly. Um, we've seen, for example, the impact in immunotherapy in non-small cell lung cancer, leading to uh, the development of completely new ways of looking at um, cancer, lung cancer, having new treatment options, like um, with the so-called immune checkpoint inhibitors such as PD-1 and PDL one and so you've been involved in some of this, this, these immunotherapies. And, and, and to, to clarify a little bit, the PD-1 or checkpoint in, um, inhibitors are proteins uh, that are part of the um, immune system cells called T-cells. And uh, normally they act as a type of switch to um, make sure that T-cells are um, being turned on or off in attacking certain things in the body that doesn't belong there. So it's kind of an interesting kind of con- concept. But if you look at that um, from your organization and from the pers- really the idea of lung cancer, um, how does this research become essential and how does that really uh, promise a future um, in your field? So clearly uh, um, lung cancer has evolved to be a role model in modern cancer therapies. We were a role model for, uh, and we are a role model for developing new targeted therapies. Um, uh, And uh, we are also a role model uh, in terms of development of immunotherapy for uh, cancer patients. And uh, as you pointed out, uh, most lately in immunotherapy, has evolved and uh, become very, very encouraging in uh, in lung cancer. There are uh, several drugs already approved and many drugs um, in clinical development. Um, one of the uh, main uh, challenges uh, related to immunotherapy is how do we select patients uh, who will respond and benefit from those treatments. And we know only 20-30% of the patients will benefit. And uh, uh, how do we select those patients? Uh, that is um, a challenge we are facing these days. And um, um, every every company, every drug seems to have their own uh, assay uh, or biomarker assay, uh, which uh, uh, should predict the outcome uh, for those uh, uh, checkpoint inhibitors. That is confusing, Um, and particularly uh, when the drugs are approved, and uh, they are approved either with a companion diagnostics or a complementary uh, diagnostics in order to better select patients for immunotherapy. But let's say five drugs uh, will be approved and you have five different assays to deal with, how will that be handled in the communities? So ISLC has played a crucial role in trying to bring the companies together 
and trying to figure out how how are those different assays comparable to each other? Are they similar? Are they interchangeable? Uh, will we end up in a harmonized uh, assay? Uh, all these things um, are uh, now studied by ISLC. It was, uh, I can uh, trust you it, 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 and, and let you know that uh, dealing with uh, five pharmaceutical companies who all are, uh, of course, uh, working towards the same cause, but still they are competitors, bring them uh, together around the same table and agree upon uh, a um, comparison study uh, for their um, predictive assays uh, has been a diplomatic uh, challenge, but we have overcome the challenge and uh, the companies are working with ISLC and all supporting uh, this very important project. So um, that was a long answer to your uh, your question, but um, we think it is a very, very clinically important project ISLC has undertaken uh, by um, uh, comparing all those PDL1 uh, assays, and uh, hopefully we will come up out with some good recommendations and also use it for education in the communities. So that is a project uh, which has high profile these days, and uh, we will present. Uh, the data, uh, some data from that, some results from that study at the upcoming World Conference in Lung Cancer in Yokohama uh, in a few weeks. Yes, and um, we're going to talk about that conference here in a little bit. But first, um, I want to ask you a little bit about the misconceptions that are connected to lung cancer. Like we mentioned in the introduction, a lot of people assume that lung cancer occurs exclusively in those who smoke. And this is clearly not the case. Can you explain to us the patient landscape of lung cancer, like age and the different types of lung cancers, such as small cell and non-small cell? That way we can have a better understanding of the patient population as a whole. Yes, uh, you're absolutely right. The stigma that lung cancer is a man-made disease has certainly uh, been very hurtful for um, uh, uh, the image, for the patients, for research, uh, and for funding uh, for lung cancer research. And uh, this stigma is definitely uh, not correct. It is a misperception. Uh, of course, um, smoking is still uh, a significant cause to lung cancer, but we see more and more uh, never smokers. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, almost 20% of lung cancer patients are today uh, never smokers. Uh, we see more and more younger patients, 
particularly younger females. Uh, we don't know the reason for that. We ha that is not um, uh, entirely clarified. Uh, what causes lung cancer in those uh, younger population? Uh, one uh, one of the uh, thing uh, we have clarified is of course that uh, lung cancer is uh, biologically very heterogeneous and has a lot of uh, mutations. Uh, some of them are what we call driver mutations, meaning they are important for driving the uh, cancer process uh, forward. Um, we know that uh, some of those important drivers like EGFR, epidermal growth factor receptor, or ALK, anaplastic, ana, ana, anaplastic lymphoma kinase, um, and uh, other uh, oncogenes uh, occur uh, most frequently in uh, younger patients and particularly never smokers. So uh, we have some uh, clues and we have some directions for uh, future research. But uh, again, the stigma uh, is not uh, entirely correct uh, and uh, should, we should get rid of this uh, stigma as soon as possible. And our organization, of course, is uh, doing, putting a lot of effort uh, into um, education and information, uh, both to the academic uh, community as well as to the public. Now to um, switch gears a little bit and, and let, let's look a little bit at um, areas of clinical trials. Over the last couple of years, we've seen that the criteria and requirements for patients to be eligible to uh, participate in, in lung cancer clinical trials um, have changed. Um, can you mention a little bit how this affects uh, patient enrollment in clinical trials, how that benefits or maybe not benefits uh, the, the participation of patients? Yeah, I don't know exactly what you mean with uh, the eligibility criteria has changed. Uh, in general, um, we, in general, I have to say it is a challenge. Uh, to uh, bring patients to clinical trials or vice versa, bring clinical trials to the patients. Um, that is something uh, our organization and other organizations are working and focusing on. We need more uh, clinical trials out in the communities. We need more patients enrolled into uh, clinical trials. Uh, it is very clear that uh, uh, the huge progress we have seen so far in lung cancer is, uh, of course, based on clinical trials. So clinical trials are crucial for uh, scientific progress in the field. So we do whatever we can to encourage uh, patients to uh, enter clinical trials and uh, 
we uh, do also a lot of effort to bring clinical trials to the patients out in the communities. Uh, it is not difficult to come into a clinical trial if you're talking New York City, Boston, or Denver, or Chicago, but um, it is still a challenge when you come out in the more peripheral part of the country, and of course also in uh, uh, many other uh, countries. Um, so uh, clinical trials is important, molecular testing uh, of patients' uh, tumors uh, are important. Uh, when I say molecular testing means a molecular characterization of uh, the patient's tumor because the molecular feature uh, of uh, the tumor uh, can direct uh, a targeted therapy. And uh, if you have this particular uh, molecular subtype uh, and you have a uh, targeted uh, therapy uh, against it, uh, that could uh, change the life perspective significantly for this uh, patient. Um, as you might know, those molecular subtypes can be quite infrequent, uh, but, uh, but um, we have more and more and more subtypes identified and more and more drugs targeting those subtypes. So uh, there is um, an, uh, an progressive opportunity for patients to um, be in um, uh, one of those categories. And uh, in general, uh, treatment for those uh, categories uh, are much milder than conventional chemotherapy. It is very often a pill. And uh, we have seen uh, very, very encouraging uh, long-term uh, effects of those um, treatments, even uh, patients we will today call cured. Right. So, so one of the things that um, is key, I mean, and you were alluding a little bit to that, um, is understand the kind of cancer the patient actually has. And uh, in a recent article in the New England Journal of Medicine um, called uh, Precision Diagnosis and Treatment for Advanced Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, uh, which was uh, written by Dr. Martin Reck and Dr. Klaus Rabe uh, from Germany, um, they actually were talking about the importance to uh, understand staging of lung cancer. Um, and, and can you tell us a little bit about the, the impact that has, the importance to understand this? Yeah. And um, just for your information, Dr. Martin Reck is a board member of, uh, of our organization. And uh, staging of lung cancer is a signature uh, for our organization. What that, what that means is that uh, our organization is uh, leading the development of uh, the international staging system uh, for lung cancer, and we have published that uh, now for many, many years. 
So that is a signature project uh, from ISLC. And staging is important uh, very clearly. Um, localized disease uh, based on uh, staging system. Some patients will be cured only uh, just by with uh, surgery. Uh, some patients uh, will be cured uh, with surgery and what we call adjuvant uh, chemotherapy. Um, so um, early stage disease and earlier as better uh, is uh, clearly uh, today probably the best potential for a cure. Um, now staging will determine also other therapies. Uh, if we have local regional disease, a combined uh, therapeutical modality will be irrelevant. And if you have advanced disease according to the staging system, then we will uh, focus on systemic uh, therapy, uh, either targeted therapy, immunotherapy, or chemotherapy. So staging means a lot for uh, uh, treatment decision and also, of course, prognosis for the patients. So we are very proud in uh, our organization that we we are the organization who has who developed those uh, staging systems. Uh, we have done that based on a database of more than hundred thousand patients, uh, where we uh, defined the different staging categories. Okay, and so this year the World Conference on Lung Cancer is being organized by your organization, the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, and it's going to be taking place in Yokohama, Japan. Can you tell us a bit about some of the exciting things we can expect at this meeting? Certainly. Uh, this meeting is the premier lung cancer meeting. Uh, we do this now every year. Uh, it rotates uh, one year in the United States, one year in Europe, one year in the rest of the world, which means either Asia or uh, Australia. Uh, for this year's meeting, uh, we, in general, we have between 6,000 and 7,000 participants, uh, which is unique uh, compared to other meetings. Uh, having six, seven thousand lung cancer focused in uh, scientists. Um, it can be clinical scientists, it can be basic scientists. Uh, we have also uh, now expanded to include uh, nurses and advocates uh, also to our program. Uh, so we have a good representation there as well. Um, some of the exciting things, we uh, there are um, clinic, big clinical trials which will be presented. Uh, there is very, very good um, what we call basic and translational science which can lead 
to uh, future treatments and uh, encouraging results will be presented. So uh, it is a very comprehensive uh, program. As I said, uh, we have also programs for nurses and advocates uh, at that meeting. And tell us why you got involved with the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, and how do you expect that this conference and the association are going to impact lung cancer research around the world? So uh, uh, that is a personal uh, uh, question. Uh, I happen to be um, a medical student in Copenhagen, and uh, Copenhagen uh, was the site where this organization originally developed. Uh, the first uh, real headquarter was in Copenhagen. The first uh, executive director was Danish, and he happened to be my mentor uh, during my studies. So um, I got engaged in, uh, in lung cancer very early and uh, also got engaged in uh, this organization. I have uh, grown up in this organization uh, for many, many, many years. I have had different roles in committees, in the board, and uh, now uh, the last four years as the CEO uh, for the organization. The organization uh, brings uh, uh, lung cancer investigators together. We used to say we are a big family. People um, come together, they uh, make networking, they make collaborations. Uh, we disseminate uh, the latest scientific achievements all over the world. Uh, and um, a combination of all these things will certainly impact uh, lung cancer research uh, globally. We bring, we bring people together from Europe, from the Middle East, from North Africa, from Asia. And, and, and one of the uh, characteristics of this organization is that we bring multidisciplinary investigators, meaning we bring surgeons, we bring we bring uh, uh, lung physicians, uh, pathologists, medical oncologists, radiation oncologists. We bring them all together in a multidisciplinary uh, approach, which is needed for um, for uh, the management of lung cancer. So this organization is the home for. Um, an international multidisciplinary community. And as I said, we are today uh, more than 7,000 members. Right. So that makes the organization very unique. I, I, I think I must say that. Um, so going back to, to some of the principles in, in cancer, I mean, we, we look at cancer and we look at uh, diagnostics and early detection, uh, we can definitely say that that is important in saving lives. I mean, the earlier cancer is detected, the better the outcome may be. Um, part of that, when we were you referred to that earlier, we're talking about a little bit about the developing of biomarkers in early detection, why that is so important. Um, can you maybe 
in, in the conclusion of, of this interview, kind of talk a little bit about um, some of the, the things this may lead to. Right. So um, early detection of lung cancer is um, is uh, of utmost importance, and we have a great focus on this. Uh, lung cancer screening with low dose CT has, in big studies, showed um, a reduction of 20% in mortality of lung cancer if you are screening the right population. And the population in those studies are uh, uh, previous uh, smokers and smokers uh, in the age of 55 to 74 years old. Um, and if you screen them with a load of CT, you reduce the lung cancer mortality with 20% and the all-cause mortality with 7%. So uh, that clearly demonstrated the role of lung cancer screening by using low-dose CT. Now, you are asking about biomarkers. The problem with uh, low-dose CT is uh, that you detect a lot of nodules which uh, are benign. They are not uh, cancer and they do not turn into cancer. And of course, uh, diagnosing those uh, nodules, false positive nodules, is a problem. Uh, It is a, a psychological trauma for the patient. It is a physical trauma because they um, very often need to undergo further diagnostic uh, procedure, uh, eventually eventually, uh, also surgery in some cases. So uh, that needs to be uh, brought down uh, the false positive rate. How can we bring down the false positive rate uh, with low-dose CT? One of the approaches uh, could be to develop good biomarkers, uh, which uh, eventually by itself could identify risk or could identify uh, patients who who will develop or not develop uh, cancer. But I believe that uh, biomarkers in adjunct to low-dose uh, CT screening will be a solution uh, for the future. Uh, Personally, uh, I'm also still scientific active, and personally, we are working on exhaled breath analysis for um, detection of uh, uh, early-stage lung cancer. And uh, the hope there is, of course, that the exhaled breath analysis, which is very, which is non-invasive and non-traumatic, uh, the individuals only blow into a balloon and we ana- make analysis of the air. Um, if that can be an adjunct to uh, CT screening. Uh, or bring the false positive rate down, 
uh, that will uh, can only be um, uh, told when we see the results in the future, but we have ongoing studies on that. There are a lot of other potential biomarkers, including uh, liquid biopsies, which we called or a plasma plasma-based, blood-based uh, biomarkers. Uh, unfortunately, on this stage, we do not have a very good biomarker uh, to talk about. We have a lot of uh, research going on in the field, and uh, I'm pretty confident that uh, something will come up within a few years. Uh, so, But that is the concept and uh, uh, approaches. Mm -hmm. So, with all these developments, uh, both in the clinical, in terms of uh, drugs that become available, treatment options that become available, diagnostics that become available, um, how do you think uh, it becomes easier for patients if they notice something is wrong to go to the, the, the clinic and, 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 and what kind of hope are, can they expect? I think uh, that the development of a personalized therapy, immunotherapy, uh, there is uh, very encouraging results for patients with advanced disease, and the progress is uh, rapidly moving forward in terms of uh, opportunities and results. So, <coughs> excuse me. So this will certainly. Uh, look for me very promising um, uh, for early stage disease and for screening. We talked about uh, uh, screening with low dose CT, uh, which is uh, clearly already have demonstrated uh, very encouraging results that can be improved in the future by um, adding uh, adjunct. Um, biomarkers uh, to it or refined, refined the technology. There is emerging technology also related to um, uh, low-dose uh, CT. Uh, so um, that is very promising uh, for patients with early-stage disease, patients who already has been diagnosed. We know that we can uh, today cure uh, some patients uh, just with uh, surgery, some patients with surgery and uh, adjuvant uh, therapy, but uh, there is a, still a lot of research going on um, also related to early stage disease. How can you combine surgery with other treatment modalities? And of course, with the uh, huge focus on immunotherapy these days for advanced disease, this uh, focus has now uh, also moved to early stage disease to better understand the immune system and uh, leverage on that uh, from a therapeutic point of view. Well, thank you very much uh, for uh, this interview, Dr. Hirsch. Um, and, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to uh, report a little bit more um, from uh, the World's uh, Conference of Lung Cancer later this year. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. 
interview you've just heard with Dr. Fred Hirsch was originally recorded on September 7, 2017. For more information about the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, please visit IASLC.org. We know that based on this interview, you may have questions. So please submit your questions to our editorial team via email, Facebook, or Twitter. And we'll post as many answers as we can on our website, oncozine.com. That is O-N-C-O-Z-I-N-E dot com. Thank you all. And thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, here with Sonia Portillo, and this is the Oncozine Brief. Oncozine Brief was produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hoffman, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wint, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and InPress Media Group. Support for the Oncozine Brief comes from our listeners and commercial underwriters. For more information about underwriting options, contact Sean Mayer at 949-923- 1660 or visit our website at oncozine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncozine Brief contains health and medicine related information and is provided for educational and informational purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.